Well, good morning, New Day. Thank you so much for being here. It's awesome to see all of your smiling faces here in person. If you're online, we're just so glad that you tuned in today. If, you're, if today's your first time here at New Day, we're in the middle of a teaching series called Christ the King. And in Christ the King, we're studying through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going through section by section. And the section that we're studying today is Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, where Jesus teaches us that faith makes all the difference. All right, speaking of things that make all the difference, I recently learned something that made all the difference in my life, and that difference involves fishing. So who here likes fishing? Just give me a show of hands. Wow, first service had you beat. There was only about half of the number here in first service, and they all liked fishing. But for all of you who like fishing, I love fishing too. But I can tell you, I don't think that any of you like fishing as much as my dad does. My dad loves fishing. So him and I, we usually fish for bass, largemouth, smallmouth, any kind of bass. Um, and we went recently to the Connecticut River to go fishing a few weeks ago. And we both normally catch a lot of fish on the river. We use for bait what's called a sanko, which is basically like a really kind of gross looking rubber worm. It's dark green. It's designed to sink to the bottom. It apparently looks really appetizing to the fish. I don't understand it. I don't think it looks appetizing at all. It looks kind of gross. I wouldn't eat it. But the fish seem to love it because we catch tons of fish using these things. So I'm on the Connecticut River with my dad. I'm fishing with Sankos, uh, but the water was pretty cloudy. I wasn't catching anything at all. But every couple of minutes, my dad, oh, I got another one. And he starts reeling it in, reeling it in. And he reels up a fish, a fish like this one that I told him I'd show a picture of one of his bigger catches. Uh, see, that's a pretty nice fish. He reels up one like that, and I'm sitting here looking at him doing this every, you know, 10 minutes or so, and I've got nothing. I'm sitting here, my line's still out in the water, here's dad reeling in another fish, and I'm just... All right. So, naturally, I wanted to catch a fish like that, too. So I asked dad, hey, what's the difference? Why are you catching all these fish? I'm getting skunked. He goes, check out what I'm using for bait. So if you do like fishing, you probably saw in that picture that he's not using the Sanko earlier. He's using what's called a spinnerbait. This spinnerbait, it's a little white, grubby, jellyfishy looking thing that apparently also looks really appetizing to fish. Again, don't understand fish, man. Uh, but there's a little metal spinner up at the top, hence why it's called a spinnerbait. Now what happens is when you cast your pole into the water, you start reeling it up that spinner on top, it spins and it catches the light from the sun in the water. So the fish will see the reflection of the light. Now, I was fishing with a dark green Sanko in cloudy water that's designed to sink to the bottom. Not a single fish even saw it. But that spinner bait, when a fish sees it go right by their face, they're like, oh, there goes lunch. So they got to go get it. And they bite it right away. So every five, 10 minutes, my dad's got another fish. So he says, check out what I'm using for bait. He shows me his spinner bait. I'm like, oh, that's it. That's gonna do it. I switched to my own spinner bait and what do you know, I started catching fish. So in the cloudy water that we were fishing in, you know, I was missing something that made all the difference once I got it. And in our text today, the disciples find themselves in a similar situation as me where they were missing something that was gonna make all the difference for them as well. Whereas my dad taught me that a spinnerbait is what's going to make all the difference, Jesus teaches his disciples, and he wants to teach us as well, that faith makes all the difference. 
faith makes all the difference. So we're going to see four things today as we dive into our text. We're going to see the pleading. We're going to see the powerlessness. We're going to see the perversion. And we're going to see the perplexity. And we'll go through these one by one, starting with the pleading. The pleading. We see the pleading in verses 14 and 15, where we read, And when they, they being Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. So here, Jesus and his disciples are coming down the mountain after the transfiguration that we learned about last week, and they're immediately met with a plea from a desperate father. Both Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel also have an account of this story, and it's in those gospel accounts that we read just the true extent that this poor, bo- this poor boy was suffering. He was actually being possessed by a demon, as we read in Mark and in Luke. And not only did this demon cause the boy to fall into the fire to be burned, throw him into the water to drown, but it also caused him to be mute, to grind his teeth, to foam at the mouth, and to become rigid. Now, Jesus had dealt with demons before. This was nothing new and foreign to Jesus. He had cast demons out of two men in Matthew chapter 8. He had cast a demon out who was causing a man to be mute in chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 12, he cast out a demon who caused its victim to be blind. And in Matthew chapter 15, he cast a demon out of a little girl uh, who was being severely oppressed by that demon. So this man, the father, he heard of all this. He knew all these stories. He's heard about Jesus before. And hearing that Jesus was atop this big, huge mountain and knowing that Jesus has power over demons, he was going to stop at nothing to get his precious little boy the help and the healing that he needed. So when Jesus finally starts descending the mountain, you can practically hear this guy's sigh of relief. Oh, finally. Jesus is finally, finally here. So he goes up to Jesus and he kneels, showing Jesus a combination of respect, humility, but also showing his desperation. And he pleads with Jesus, asking him to heal his poor son. But this man doesn't stop after his plea. He continues, he continues talking and he gives Jesus a very, very interesting piece of information, which we're going to see in our next point, the powerlessness, the powerlessness. We see the powerlessness in verse 16, where the man continues, and I brought him to your disciples. Now, we've got to stop for a second to remember that Jesus, along with his disciples, were heading from Caesarea Philippi all the way down to Capernaum. On their way, they stopped at Mount Moran, which is where the transfiguration took place which is where Jesus gave the three, Peter, James, and John, who ascended the mountain with him, a preview of his coming glory. That would have been an absolutely surreal experience for all of them. Well, since Jesus only brought three of his disciples up the mountain, we know that the other nine disciples were still at the base. And not only would they have been available to minister to anybody who was there and who came to them for help, they actually would have been trusted to do so. And that's exactly what they tried to do. They tried to minister to people, but as we continue reading our text, we see that this man, the father, tells Jesus, hey, I brought my son to your disciples, and they could not heal him. In other words, your disciples, they were powerless. And let me tell you, 
after the glory of the transfiguration, hearing from this man that the disciples were powerless in this situation would have been the thing that just so rudely brought Jesus back to reality. This statement would have made, made Jesus' heart sink straight to the floor. But why? Why would it have impacted him so much? We have to remember that Jesus' time is coming. Jesus only has six more months before he's going to be betrayed by one of his own, beaten, flogged, and ultimately crucified for the sins of the world. And he knows this. He's not, this isn't a secret to him. He spent two and a half years personally teaching and training his disciples to prepare them for this eventuality. As we read in Matthew chapter 10, we see that one of the things Jesus did to help prepare his disciples for the work of the ministry after he was crucified was that he gave them authority over unclean spirits, aka demons, to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. In Luke's gospel, Luke says that after receiving this authority, the disciples departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So the disciples had done this before. They had healed demons before. And by now, Jesus' expectation of them, and seemingly their expectation of themselves as well, was that they should be performing exorcisms like this with great ease and with confidence. This obviously was the boy's father's expectation of them as well, because he'd taken his son to the disciples way before Jesus had even come down the mountain from the transfiguration. So he was expecting a healing from the disciples. But unfortunately, it just didn't happen. So here's Jesus coming down the mountain after the otherworldly experience that we know as the transfiguration, being met with an explanation of his disciples' powerlessness and being told that they could not do what he himself had given them the power and the authority to do. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in the same situation as Jesus right here, I'd be with him. My heart would be on the ground. And all of this, of course, prompts a reaction from Jesus. And that reaction leads us nicely to our next point, the perversion. The perversion. We see the perversion in verses 17 to 18, where we read, And Jesus answered them. He said, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? Now, the word twisted here means the same as the word perverted, which is a pottery term. When a potter would make a piece that was all twisted and warped and bent out of shape, they'd call it perverted. So here, Jesus is saying that the disciples and the generation are perverted because of their faithlessness. Knowing what we now know about the disciples' authority to cast out demons, and with Jesus' crucifixion growing ever closer, we can also get the sense that when Jesus is calling out the faithlessness and the perversion of his disciples and of the generation, it's not just your average exasperated statement. It's not just, oh guys, you're so faithless. Come on, bring the boy to me. Let me show you how it's done. No, no, no. He's showing a lot of emotion right now. Jesus is absolutely grieved by the powerlessness of his disciples. But it's not just the disciples he addresses here, it's the entire generation. Jesus is calling them all faithless and saying that they're all perverted. He's probably thinking, if my own disciples, who I've given the power and the authority to cast out demons, don't have enough faith to do so, then what hope is there for the rest of the generation? If my own disciples who've been with me every day, day in and day out for the past almost three years don't have enough power to do this, what hope is there for the rest of the people? That's why he's despairing so much. To see all this faithlessness 
in the disciples and in the people of his generation, Jesus honestly probably felt exactly like Moses did when Moses came down from Mount Sinai after receiving the Ten Commandments. If you don't know this story, Moses, upon receiving the Ten Commandments directly from God on top of Mount Sinai, descended that mountain to find all of the Israelites whom he had just rescued from Egypt through God's power. He had just led them all from Egypt. He saw all of them, including his own brother Aaron, building and worshiping an idol in the form of a golden calf. The Israelites hadn't seen Moses since he went up that mountain 40 days prior, so they lost faith that he would ever come back down. They said, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So they lost faith and they created for themselves an idol in the form of a golden calf. So Moses, when he came down the mountain, he was obviously distraught. So much so that he actually broke the stone tablets that contained the Ten Commandments. And he would later call the Israelites a crooked and twisted generation. Now, right here in our passage, Jesus used the same words as Moses in calling the generation twisted after descending a mountain and finding faithlessness just like Moses did. And he used those words to lament the perversion of the people and of his own disciples, to lament the fact that because of their faithlessness, the generation was spiritually bent out of shape. Jesus then continues. He says, how long am I to bear with you? And it's in this display of emotion that we're reminded that while Jesus is fully God, he's also fully man. His righteous frustration shows his humanity. How long am I to bear with you, he asks rhetorically. Just as Moses was frustrated with the Israelites' perversion in his day, Jesus was righteously frustrated with his disciples and his generation's perversion. He may even have been tempted to doubt whether his coming suffering and death would even be worthwhile. When I was studying this passage, one Bible commentator made it so real to me what Jesus was feeling. He just took whatever Jesus must have been feeling here and summed it up so nicely in one sentence. Let me read you what he said. He wrote this. If they do not trust you while you are with them, Satan may have whispered in Jesus' ear, how do you expect them to trust you after you've returned to heaven? Hey, if they don't even trust you while you're here, how are they going to trust you when they're gone? But Jesus, also being fully God, wasn't going to stray from his divine mission, nor would he succumb to Satan's temptation to despair, like Moses did when he smashed the stone tablets. So Jesus turned to his disciples and he says, bring him here to me. Bring the boy here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed. When Jesus' disciples didn't have the power to cast out this demon because of their perversion, Jesus himself did. And when Jesus rebuked that demon, oh, it had no choice but to leave the boy. Because if we've seen, as we've seen so many times, just in Matthew's gospel alone, Jesus has absolute power over demons. And let me tell you, this father, oh my goodness, was he ever overjoyed that his son had finally gotten the healing that he needed. He was just out of this world. But the disciples, sure, they were happy for the kid, but they were also really, really confused. And it's their confusion that leads us to the final point we're going to see in our text today, which is the perplexity. The perplexity. We see the perplexity in verses 19 through 20, where we read, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? Meaning, why didn't we have the power 
to cast it out. The disciples were perplexed as to why they couldn't cast out the demon, and they were more than a little bit humiliated as well. They had cast out so many demons before, and they probably tried to cast this one out in the exact same way that they had cast the others out, but this time it just didn't work. So they're both curious and embarrassed, and they go in their embarrassment privately to Jesus to ask why they failed. And Jesus answers. Jesus says, hey, you guys are asking, why didn't we have the power? What's the difference between you and us? And he said to them, it's because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Because of your little faith, he says. You want to know the difference? Hey, faith makes all the difference. In order to have the power, you've got to have the faith. Even if you have faith like a mustard seed, the smallest amount of faith, you'll be able to move mountains, which was a Hebrew term. Moving mountains, they used that to say, surmount great obstacles. When, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. when Jesus referenced the mustard seed, that would have been the aha moment that the disciples needed to cure them of their perplexity. Back in Matthew 13, Jesus told the parable of the mustard seed, and the disciples would have remembered this very well. The parable says, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Like I said, the disciples, they totally would have remembered this parable. And they would know that what Jesus is saying here is that they didn't have the right kind of faith to cast out this demon. Oh, the disciples had saving faith for sure. And they also had the kind of faith that was strong when things were going well, but they did not have mustard seed faith. And therefore, they did not have the power to cast out this demon. All right, this begs the question. Jack? What in the world is mustard seed faith? What does mustard have to do with faith? Well, like Jesus says in the parable, a mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds. You can fit hundreds of them just in the palm of your hand. But it doesn't stay small forever. Mustard seeds grow. They start tiny, but they grow until it's the biggest plant in the garden, until it's larger than everything else in the garden. So mustard seed faith, therefore, doesn't refer to little faith if mustard seed faith just meant little faith, the disciples would have been able to cast out the demon right there because Jesus said, you have little faith. Mustard seed faith is faith that grows. Mustard seed faith is faith that grows. And if you have mustard seed faith, even if it starts small, eventually it'll grow and grow and grow and grow until it's mustard tree faith, which is big, huge, enormous, mountain-moving faith. Mustard tree faith is the kind of faith that never gives up. It's true faith. It's believing that it's not in your own power that something can be accomplished, but that it's God's power that'll be at work to do his will through your faith. So the disciples' problem here is that they had little faith that stayed little. They had been with Jesus for almost three years. They'd seen him cast out demons. They'd even cast out demons themselves. But yet, they didn't have the faith that they could cast this one out. So Jesus rids them of their perplexity by saying that basically because you didn't have faith, you didn't have power. 
He says that if they had mustard seed faith, meaning if their faith had grown to big faith, as it should have given their time and their experience with Jesus, they would be able to move mountains. Like I said, not literally move mountains, though they probably would have been able to with God's power, but they would have been able to surmount the huge obstacle that was in front of them. You want to know the difference between you and I? Jesus says, you want to know why I was able to move the mountain even when you weren't? It's because of faith. Faith makes all the difference. So faith makes all the difference is a great lesson. But there's a question here that's just begging to be asked. And that question is this. What does this lesson have to do with me? And the answer is very simple. This lesson has everything to do with us. Has everything to do with us. Because just like the disciples, we all have mountains. That is, we all have obstacles to surmount in front of us as well. Now, maybe you already know what your obstacles are in your life that you need to surmount. Maybe for you, that mountain is an addiction. It could be an addiction to drugs, to alcohol, could be an addiction to pornography, an addiction to food, to social media, to coffee. You name it. Maybe it's anxiety. Your mountain's anxiety. Maybe you're worried about your health. You just got a bad prognosis from the doctor and it's got you really worried about the future. Maybe you're worried about finding a new job, being able to provide for your family. Maybe you're worried about finding a spouse. Maybe you're worried about finding a new place to live. Or maybe your obstacle is spiritual warfare. Maybe the enemy is trying to make you feel like you're not good enough to be a child of God. Maybe he's telling you, oh, you're so different from everyone else. Or that the God could never love someone like you. Which, by the way, is baloney because, as I'll talk about later, the whole reason Jesus died for you is because he loves you. If you're struggling with any of these obstacles, or if you're struggling with any other obstacle, then I want to encourage you today. The disciples, they sure were struggling with an obstacle. They had their obstacle right in front of them. It was this demon and they couldn't cast it out. And whether you're having trouble casting out your addiction or anxiety or your doubt or anything else, Jesus tells us right here in our passage what's going to make the difference. Take a look one more time at what he says. I know we read this, but it's so important here that you remember this. I'm going to read it one more time. He says, For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. And I firmly believe that with the Holy Spirit's guidance, Matthew saw fit to tell us that the exact thing that made the difference for the disciples is the thing that's going to make all the difference for us in our own lives as well. And the thing that we need, it's not the spinnerbait that I told you about earlier, it's going to help you fishing, it made all the difference for me when I was fishing, but let me tell you, that spinnerbait has yet to help me with my spiritual battles, Okay. The thing that's going to make all the difference for us is mustard tree faith. So by way of application, I want to give you a few practical ways that you can grow your faith into mustard tree faith. Number one is to consistently spend time in God's word. Consistently spend time in God's word. The key is consistency. Remember how tiny mustard seeds are? Remember how I said you can fit hundreds of them in the palm of your hands? Well, you wouldn't expect them to grow into the biggest plant in your garden based on the side of the seed. 
the size of the seed, but that is exactly what they do. But they're not growing just automatically. It's not that you can just take a bunch of mustard seeds and throw them, and then in a couple weeks, you're going to have a big, huge mustard tree. No. Mustard seeds, just like any other seeds, need to be fed and nurtured consistently in order to grow. And just like the mustard seed needs to be fed consistently in order to grow, our faith needs to be fed consistently in order to grow. You feed the mustard seed with water and sunlight, but what do you feed faith with? Well, thankfully, Jesus answers this question himself by quoting the Old Testament when he was being tempted by the devil. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And, praise be to God, we have access to God's word wherever we go. His word's given to us today through the Bible. And you can download the Bible app for free on your phone. If you don't have a physical Bible here, I just want to invite all of you right now, if you don't have a physical Bible, right after I'm done preaching, after summer comes up, go down to the guest services. You can get a free Bible. We have plenty of them. We want to make sure that you have access to God's word before you walk out of this building today. Maybe you have a Bible at home on your bookshelf, but whether it's on your bookshelf, whether you get it from guest services today, whether it's on your phone, there's one thing that I need you all to know that's so, so important about having a Bible if you're going to grow in your faith. And that's that just having God's word won't feed us. You have to be in God's word if you're going to be fed. If you have a Bible and you say you're being spiritually fed, but you aren't reading it, that's like if I were to tell you that if I hadn't eaten anything all day, I'm still full because I'm in the presence of a sandwich. <laughs> and I'm still hungry, and I know there's food in this building, so it doesn't work. And likewise, it doesn't work if you have a Bible, but you're not reading it. You have to consume the sandwich to actually be fed. And you have to consume, that is, you have to read the Bible in order to be spiritually fed. And just like if I eat a sandwich, I'll be hungry later, it's the same thing with the Bible. You have to consistently consume the word of God. Now, if you don't yet have a habit of reading your Bible, good news is it's nice and easy to start one. You can start with just five minutes a day, just one chapter a day. Just read until you find something that you can reflect on and then reflect on it prayerfully. And when you do, you're going to find out two things. One, you're going to find out, wow, I actually want to spend a little bit more time reading my Bible today. That's what happened to me. And two, you're going to find out, oh, my mustard seed sprouted. It's growing into a tree. Your faith is going to grow when you read the Word. So, what does it look like, though, when you spend time in God's Word consistently? Well, to answer that question, I want to take a look at some of the mountains that I referenced earlier. Let's say you're suffering from the mountain of anxiety. Now, I know, because I've had it, anxiety can get really, really bad. But because you consistently spend time in God's word every day, you know my favorite Bible verse. You know that Joshua 1.9 says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And you can use that promise directly from God to help you persist through your anxiety. All right, what if you're struggling with addiction? You have the mountain of addiction that you're struggling with. If you consistently spend time in God's word, you know that 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, meaning when that temptation comes, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And you can use this promise directly from God's word to persist in staying away from temptation. All right, what if you feel insufficient? If you're in God's word consistently, you know what Romans chapter five, verse eight says. Romans chapter five, verse eight says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's gonna help you persist because that's gonna remind you that God loves you so much that he gave his one and only son for you. And you won't be able to feel, uh, you won't be able to feel
Thanks for experiencing this message with us. Do you want more New Day Church in your life? Well, please like and subscribe on YouTube and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Want to take a next step in your faith? Our Church Center app is the best place to get more connected. So just download the free app on your app store today and be sure to choose New Day Church in Enfield, Connecticut. We are able to offer this sermon and all others like it only because of your faithful financial support. Thank you to all of you who so faithfully give each week. If you feel led to support our ministry financially, just go to our website at newdaychurch.cc forward slash give. Thank you in advance. May God richly bless you, and we hope to see you again real soon.